You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. It's good to see you this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and flip there. If you need a Bible, uh, feel free to grab the one, uh, you should have one under your seat there, a white one. Um, that's the version we'll be using. And so if you don't have a good Bible, you can steal that one. We'll consider it a gift to you. And so feel free. Um, okay, so Ephesians chapter 6, and we, we're on the home stretch of Ephesians. We're almost there. All right, so, so we're getting there, and I, I just want to take a second to remind you, um, as we kind of look at one of the most popular passages in the Bible, specifically as it deals with spiritual warfare, I want to remind you of the context. And so in Ephesians, we remember what Paul's done. In the first three chapters, he said, this is the gospel. In the, the next three chapters, starting in verse, or in chapter four, he says, this is what the gospel looks like lived out by you. So here's the gospel. There's no commands in the first three chapters. One command is to remember the gospel. That's it. And then when you get to chapter four, though, there's all these imperatives, all these do thises. And that's this reflection of Paul saying, here's the gospel to find. Now here's the gospel displayed in your life. This is what it looks like. Okay, now, now think about the context here. At the end of that, this is what the gospel looks like as it's lived out through you. Paul ends with spiritual warfare. So he's putting spiritual warfare in the context of the daily grind of your life. Everybody likes to gravitate to the extreme wild cases of spiritual stuff. And Paul's saying this is in the middle of the daily grind for you. Spiritual warfare is real people with a real devil in a real war making it really, really difficult to live out the gospel. That's spiritual warfare. Okay, now with that, I want to I start with a, a quote from Clinton Arnold. We read this a few weeks ago. Um, he's done a lot of theological heavy lifting on just kind of this whole topic of spiritual warfare. He says this about it. Spiritual warfare is a way of characterizing our common struggle as Christians. Spiritual warfare is an, is all encompassing. It touches every area of our lives, our families, our relationships, our church, our neighborhoods, our community, and our places of employment. This is spiritual warfare. It, it's in the daily grind of all of your life. When you wake up and crawl out of bed in the morning, you're crawling into the conflict, right? Like when you leave bed, you're entering the battle. When, when you drop a kid off at school, that's war zone, right? It's in the daily grind of your life. This is where spiritual warfare happens. Okay, now think about just this whole imagery of spiritual warfare. I think it's really good for us to hear, especially in our culture where we feel like we're so entitled to a nice life with no suffering, right? That's not how a soldier thinks. I put yourself in the middle of a battle as a soldier. You're not thinking, you know what? I'm probably going to have a nice, easy road in front of me here. That's not how a soldier thinks. In the middle of a conflict, a soldier is thinking when he wakes up, this is life or death today. A soldier has this alertness about them, this watchfulness about them, this urgency about them. And you know what's strange is that's missing from most Christians in America, right? And so I think this is really helpful imagery for us. Okay, now when you get into to verse 10 and on, the first five verses, 10 to 14, Paul gives us one word that he uses four times in those five verses. It's this word stand or withstand. And Paul's saying, this is, this is the job in spiritual warfare and the daily grind of this. As you connect the gospel to the daily normal routines of your life, the job is to stand, to set up resistance. 
Okay, now verse 10 gives us kind of the first thing we need to have in our mind as it relates to setting up resistance or standing. Verse 10 is going to tell us that if we want to set up good resistance in this war, then then we've got to run to God's strength. We're dependent upon the strength of God. That's verse 10. And then verse 11 clarifies that, doesn't leave it ambiguous and abstract. Verse 11 shows us what strengthening ourselves in the Lord means. Verse 11, that we put on the armor of God. Resisting requires these resources of God. Okay, so Paul tells us in verse 11 that these resources that God gives, it's called armor. That's what Paul calls it. Now look at the words around armor. You've got the idea of it's God's armor. So it's it's armor that God possesses and that he generously provides to his sons and daughters. Okay, so it's God's armor. It's whole armor. It's the whole armor of God. Whole armor means that when you have it all strapped on, everything that needs covering is covered. Everything that needs protecting is protected. Okay, this is the idea. Now, okay, now look at this. The the command in verse 11. I just want to draw your attention back to this. The command is to put it on. It's not to listen to it. It's not to be able to define what it is. It's not to be able to point it out. The the command is put on the armor of God. And we've said this over and over again, but that is hard work. And let me tell you how you know if you're putting on the armor of God. Okay, you're putting on the armor of God when you start to have these internal conversations. Okay, so don't think I'm crazy here, right? So it's when these internal conversations start to happen that sound like this. If this is true, why am I doing that? If I've really been given a breastplate of the righteousness of Christ, why am I still looking for approval over there? If God has really given us the gospel of peace, why am I feeling that? If we really have the shield of faith, then why this? When you start having the, if this is true, why that conversation? That's when you know you're putting it on. That's when you're starting to not just be able to define what these pieces of armor are, but you're thinking about them in terms of your life and applying them to your life. Okay, so that takes us to verse 17. The last two pieces of armor this morning. Verse 17 says this, Take the helmet of salvation. This is remedy number five. The helmet of salvation. Okay, so let's let's take a step back here. Put yourself in a prison cell with Paul. And Paul is thinking about a robust and a full understanding of salvation. And he's looking and thinking about a Roman soldier ready for war. And he's thinking, what, what could I hang that, that, that salvation on? This full, robust understanding of salvation. He looked at the Roman soldier's helmet and says, that's it. That's, that, that's the link here. So think about a Roman soldier's helmet. Um, we're talking about a helmet made of heavy metal, placed over the head, kind of covers the cheeks, brain, or just your vital head area there, right? And Paul's saying, this is what the helmet of salvation does. I like what one commentator said. He said that only an axe could pierce the helmet, right? And so this is what the helmet of salvation, this idea of this broad, good, full, robust understanding of salvation fits over the believer like a helmet to protect them. Okay, so we've got a little bit of work to do to make this come to life for us. First thing is trying to think in terms of salvation in a broad sense of what the word means. So salvation in a broad sense. Okay, so when you're, when you're thinking biblically what the word means, salvation, I think one way you could think of it is, is rescue. Now, okay, now, so think about the context here. When you think of rescue or salvation, it means that you're in a perilous and a dangerous situation. 
And all of a sudden, somebody breaks through and rescues you from it. If we want to put this in baseball terms, maybe even ranger terms, we could say Cliff Lee, right? This is rescue, right? This this is the idea. If you're one of the 33 miners trapped in in a coal mine, 20 or a gold mine, 2,500 feet below the surface of the earth, and you see a drill bit break through, that's rescue. This is the idea. You are in a life-threatening situation, and there's a rescue that takes place. Okay, now in the Old Testament. You've got this, this picture of rescue. It's really the Exodus. It's the primary picture in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are in Egypt and they are being greatly oppressed. Their newborns are being killed. The men and women are being oppressed like crazy. Like this is the picture. They cry out to God and God sends rescue to them. Okay, this is a foreshadowing of the New Testament reality of Jesus on the cross. This new Exodus in, in, in the New Testament where God comes in the form of Jesus to rescue men and women. R.C. Sproul, he's one of my favorite living theologians. One time he was walking across a, uh, a college campus and a guy comes up to him ready to evangelize R.C. Sproul. I would like to have a video camera on that moment. And so the guy comes up to him and says, uh, are you saved? R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul kind of looks back at him, kind of trying to think, how am I going to respond to this? And he looks back and says, from what? And, and he's just listening to him tell this story. Um, the, the guy is like the deer in the headlights look. Like, well, that's a great question. What are we safe from? Okay, the biblical answer to that, you need to know. That you are saved from God. That's what you're saved from in the Bible. That, that Ephesians 2 is going to say that you're an object of wrath, that you're not on the same team as God, that you're enemies with God. He's your enemy, you're his enemy, that it's not going well here. And the rescue of the New Testament is God, in our rebellion, God sending Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, fully God, fully human, to die on a cross, to be beaten for you, to die on that cross where all the guilt that you have was stacked on him, all the sins stacked against you stacked on him, all the condemnation that you receive condemns him. This is the picture of rescue. This is what we're talking about in broad terms. It is this beautiful picture of God doing for man what man could not do for themselves. Okay, broad, that's broad sense. Okay, so now, I, and this is just from personal experience talking with people, here's what I've come to realize. That people have a very limited and lacking view of how this salvation reaches into their life. Very limited and lacking view of that. So let me try to bring this out in, in showing you that, that salvation in the Bible is in three tenses. Salvation's in three tenses. Let me walk you through this. The first tense is past tense. That the Bible is going to say that you have been saved from sin, from the penalty of sin. Okay, this is in Ephesians chapter 2 where it's going to say that by grace you have been saved. You've been saved. And that saved is a past tense action where something has happened in your life. God has decisively acted in your life to free you from the penalty of sin. This is what theologians call justification. That in the court of God's justice, we've got a problem. God is holy and just. He can't just sweep sin under the rug. And our problem in the court of God's justice is there's an insurmountable verdict pronounced against us. It's a debt that is so big that we can't pay it. 
And so God sends Jesus to pay that for us. So that now, okay, so, so walk with me here. So that now when we place our faith in Jesus, faith is trusting in God, it's surrendering your life to God, and treasuring God above all things. That's what faith is. And when we place our faith in Jesus, our guilt, our legal standing before God is now wiped clean. We have not only been pardoned, but we have been imparted with the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is um, Romans um, 8.1, where it's going to say that we're no longer condemned. We're no longer under the wrath of God, under the penalty of God. On the other side of the cross, we have the perfect fatherly affection of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? This is salvation past. This is a decisive moment in your past when you move, when you cross from death to life by faith. Decisive moment. A life-altering, eternity-altering moment. Now think about this. This is what it means not to be under condemnation. This is what it means to be freed from the penalty of sin. That when God looks at you, when you place your faith in Him, and, and when He saves you, From that point forward, you cannot do anything to earn more of his favor. You can do nothing to be more pleasing to God. In that moment, this past moment when God saves you, in that moment, you are fully and completely under the favor and pleasure of God. Isn't that beautiful? This is past tense salvation. Okay, now it's not just past tense salvation. There's a broad picture in the scriptures. It's not just past tense. There's also a future, or I'm sorry, a a present tense to this. There's also a here and now to this. Okay, this is this idea of you're not only saved and freed from the penalty of sin, but you're being saved from the power of sin in your life. Okay, this is Philippians chapter 2, where it's going to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's written to believers to keep doing. Okay, this is um, 1 Corinthians 3.18, where it's going to say the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, present tense, being saved. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2, where it's going to say the gospel is, is saving you. You're being saved by it. It's, it's present tense. It's happening now. Okay, so this is what theologians call sanctification. This is the process, this current salvation, present salvation of God coming in and cleaning you up. You're no longer under the condemnation of God, but there's a lot of cleanup to do. Amen? Yes, there's a lot of cleanup to do. Okay, so I I like how one pastor said this. He put it in the context of a corporation that has polluted the environment. Just through reckless mismanagement. I mean, they have wrecked the environment with their pollution. The EPA comes in. And the EPA, I mean, they exact like a $4 billion fine for this company. The problem is the company has like $250 in the checking account. It's a bad deal. You can't, they can't pay it. But now picture somebody else paying that for them. That's justification. That's the past act of salvation where God no longer has you under the the sway of the law. You're no longer under the penalty of the justice of God anymore. Okay, but now think about this. After the fine has been paid to the EPA, there's still a whole cleanup process to to do, right? You've still got this pollution cleaning process to work out where this deep-seated pollution has to be cleaned and wiped away. This is what God is currently doing in you, present tense, if you're a son or daughter of God. He has put his Holy Spirit in you to walk with you, to convict you of sin, and to make you look like Jesus. This is what God's doing. 
And can we all admit that there's a lot of cleaning up to do? Like when you think about the lack of patience in your life, the lack of joy in your life, the lack of how we love on people, the lack of faithfulness, gentleness. I mean, we could go down all the fruits of the Spirit, right? And we could see how far we are from the image of Christ. And this is what God is presently doing in you. This is what it means to be saved. That God is currently, today, working salvation in you. Present tense. Okay, now there's also a future tense to this. Okay, now this is where Romans 13 is helpful. This future tense where God is going to save. It's, it's this future tense where God's going to free you, not just from the penalty, not just from the power, but from the presence of sin. Okay, Romans 13 says this. Interesting passage. 13 verse 11. It says, the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So he's talking to believers and he, that, are, that have been freed from the penalty of sin, being freed from the power of sin, past tense, present tense. And he's saying, but salvation also has this future tense aspect. That the, the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we started this thing. That there is a future tense reality for a believer. Okay, this is a beautiful thing that you need to think about. That the Bible holds out great hope for you as a Christian. It's saying that, that this life is not all there is. That the ache in your soul that will never be satisfied on this planet will be someday. That the unquenchable kind of cravings of the soul will only be quenched when everything is made perfect. And see, this is this great hope for a Christian, that we know that one day either we will die and see it, or Christ will split the heavens and come back where he will fully and finally renew all things. Like, think about this in Genesis chapter 1, where you've got this picture of the Garden of Eden. Now, I think about Revelation 21 and 22, where you have got the new heavens and the new earth coming down. The same tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden now reappears. This is what God is up to. History is linear. History comes to a close and God is at the end of it where he finally and fully restores all things, even you. So that now you and I are are fully and finally who God has intended us to be. This is the picture of this future tent salvation. I like how um, Jonathan Edwards, he was talking about heaven and this fully and finally being renewed. He talks about how on earth we have five senses. But in heaven, like think about this renewed, this renewed thing that God does in us, these new bodies that he creates in us. He says in heaven, you're going to have thousands of them. Like it's just kind of a beyond description thing here. This hope that God holds out in front of us to know that there's more to life than here. That there's great hope in the future. Okay, now think about how this readies you for war. Think about how salvation becomes this helmet that fits on you, that readies you for war. And when you think about a helmet, just first of all here, when you think about this helmet... It would imply that there's going to be bullets and bombs dropping, right? I mean, you don't wear a helmet in your house, probably. But you wear one on a football field, don't you? You'd wear one if you're in combat, wouldn't you? Uh, So just the implication of a helmet means that there are going to be bombs dropping and bullets flying, of which you need a helmet to survive. Okay, so think about how this helmet makes you and, and allows you to stand and set up resistance in the day of evil. Like, what if your thing is guilt? And I'll just kind of run this through some counseling situations. What if your thing is guilt? 
That when you look at your life and you look at the sinfulness of your life, the imperfections in your life, the, the lack of Christ's likeness in your life, I mean, what if this guilt just plagues you? And by the way, every person on the planet has to do something with guilt. It's uh, Everybody's got it. And, and so w- w- th- this guilt that just plagues you. Okay, so it, maybe it comes out like this. I, I know that... that like stealing a paperclip and going a couple mile an hour over the speed limit is one thing, but abortion, this is a different one for me. I mean, the fact that, that this lust in my life, that's a whole different one for me. This self-righteousness in me, that's a whole different one. This immorality in me, this is a whole different one. And this guilt becomes this paralyzing thing. And you know what I love to do in counseling situations in this moment? Is to be able to gently remind people of past salvation. The past tense. That all the guilt that you're carrying around with you is because you do not believe the gospel where God has completely freed you from it. Think about this. Maybe maybe your deal is you just feel like you don't have the power to overcome sin in your life. That it's not just that you've sinned, but it's that you've sinned for the three billionth time and it's the same thing, you know? I mean, it's this moment where you just finally resign yourself to me and this thing we're going to be coexisting buddies for the rest of our life. We're just not, this, we're never going to break this little union here. I mean, think about this moment of, of just where you have resigned yourself that, that this is just who I am. When you resign yourself to this is just who you are, it's showing that you have lost present tense salvation. That, that you're just not seeing all that you've been given in the gospel. That you're not seeing that God not only saved you, but He is saving you. He is changing you. He is at work in you. He has given you everything you need to say no to what you need to say no to and to say yes to what you need to say yes to. I love this quote by John Stott kind of commenting on this. Where he asked this question. He says, is God really able to change human nature? Is God really able to do that? I mean, you know that person that you look at and just think, jerk is written across their forehead? Is God really able to change that person? Or maybe you're that person, right? Can God really change you? Can He really change the nature of a person? Can He really make cruel people kind and selfish people unselfish, immoral people self-controlled, and sour people sweet? Is He able to take dead people and make them alive in Christ? The answer, yes, He really can. And this is what God is doing, present tense, in every one of his sons and daughters. He is rooting out that selfishness and replacing it with selflessness. He's rooting out that immorality and replacing it with purity. This is what God's up to. And so some of us just need to be reminded this morning of this broad, big, beautiful picture of salvation that doesn't, isn't just a past event, but it's a present reality in your life. Okay, now let's think about the future piece of this. Maybe your thing is just a hopelessness. That, that life has just beat you down to the point that it seems like you're in this tunnel that you just do not see the light out of. That life has kicked you so hard that you're ready to just give up and die in despair. I mean, maybe it's that the doctor says that you've got cancer. Maybe it's the phone call that says your loved one is dead. I mean, we could just go down. I mean, life is bloody and life is brutal for all of us in here. It's coming for all of us, right? 
And so when that moment happens and when we see no hope, maybe we're like Paul and we have been literally um, shipwrecked. We've been bitten by a snake, beaten by men, imprisoned, stoned, left. I mean, this moment when the day of evil has come and all hope just seems to vanish. I love what First Thessalonians 5, 8 calls the helmet of salvation. In, in Thessalonians, Paul calls it the hope of the helmet of salvation. That in this salvation, big, bold, beautiful picture, past, present, and future, God gives us this great hope of what's to come. And maybe we need to be reminded of that today, that this is not your home, that the Bible calls you an exile here. And maybe we need to stop expecting it to be home for us, right? And maybe we need to start looking a little um, deeper into what God has for us. Okay, so this, this helmet of salvation is essential if you want to stand. I mean, this is, a, this is an essential part of the armor that God has given you to withstand and to stand in the day of evil. Okay, verse 17. Last piece of armor. And take the helmet of salvation, and then here's the last one. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remedy number six. Last one. He says it's the sword of the Spirit. Okay, so Paul is thinking about gospel promises in the Word of God. These truths that, that we can use to beat back Satan in our life. And he's asking the question, with this Roman soldier ready for war, what can I hang this on? What can I hang the truth of the scriptures on to, to kind of give this to him in a metaphor, in a picture? And he looks at this short sword of a Roman soldier, this razor sharp, hand-to-hand combat, I will kill you type sword. And he says, that's it. This is what the Word of God is for a believer. It is this sword of the Spirit used to beat back Satan. It's the one, it's the one piece of armor that is primarily offensive. It's intrinsically offensive. You don't just use it to stand, but you use this to cut a path to advance, right? So this is what Paul's saying. You have been given this, this sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Okay, now I want you to see the bookends of the armor. Verse 14. You've got the belt of truth. Verse 17, you've got the sword of the Spirit. Okay, so I want you to see these two and how they relate as these bookends. Belt of truth versus sword of the Spirit. The belt of truth, we'll go that one first. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The belt of truth is looking at the Bible from a panoramic picture and saying, the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is reliable. I can plant my life on the scriptures and know that I've got firm footing. So we define the belt of truth this way, that it is the God-given gift of the scriptures. This is what the belt of truth is. Now think about the belt of truth, though. The belt of truth is not offensive. When somebody breaks into your home, let's just say tonight, they break into your home, men, you don't look over to your wife and say, hey, will you grab that belt? I got to go take care of this. It's not an offensive weapon, right? You don't use it like that. Okay, it's not for, it's a foundational piece of equipment. It's used to keep everything else in place. Belt of truth. Here's the word of God, Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's reliable. It's trustworthy. It is becoming the worldview, the lens by which I see the world. That's belt of truth. Now, sword of the spirit is different from that. It's not an overlap here. Okay. It's not, he's not just saying the same thing. The sword of the spirit becomes a piece of the belt of truth. It is when you break off a piece of the belt of truth, Form that into a sword that you can specifically apply in the moments of life. 
Okay, so the sword of the Spirit is this. Let me just give you a working definition here. The sword of the Spirit are specific gospel promises that counteract specific sinful tendencies. This is what the sword of the Spirit is. It is specific promises in the Bible, specific truth in the Bible that you start to wield like a sword that you can start to cut a path with, that you can use to beat back the enemy with. The sword of the Spirit are specific truth used to counteract specific sinful tendencies in your heart. Sword of the Spirit. Okay. Now this sword is absolutely, massively important in the conflict. Can you imagine running onto a battlefield where they have guns and you just take the, the, the bulletproof vest Right? And you're like, okay, I'm okay. I know they've got guns, but I've got a bulletproof vest. We're good. Can you imagine that moment? You would have to be ridiculous to go with the bulletproof vest. Now, I'm all for a bulletproof vest, but if they've got guns, I want guns. If they've got a sword, I want a sword, right? I, it just doesn't make sense when they have an offensive weapon for all, I mean, for you just to put on your defensive armor and say, we're good. This is that offensive piece that allows you to move forward. Okay, so think about this. I, I'm going to give you a quote, an extended quote from the Pilgrim's Progress. It's our October book of the month. I'd recommend you get it. Okay, so here's the situation that's happened to Christian. That's the main character's name in the Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, it's this metaphor of the Christian life. Christian has just walked up the hill of difficulty. Okay, so he's just gone up the hill of difficulty. It's this metaphor of just difficult seasons in life. And now he is going down the valley into the valley of the shadow of death. This metaphor. You just got up the hill of difficulty. Now you're walking through the, the, the valley of the shadow that comes after that. In the valley of the shadow of death is when Apollyon, Satan, attacks him. And I want to give you kind of the stories that plays out in the Pilgrim's Progress. This is at the end of the story. This is Bunyan's kind of summary of this, of this setting. He says this. This combat, no one could imagine unless he had seen or heard it, as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring Apollyon made all the time of the fight. He spoke like a dragon. And then he says this, on the other side, what signs and groans burst from Christian's heart. So he's showing you that this conflict is the real deal. I mean, this is life and death going on here. Okay, now this is how he describes the conflict. Christian, walking through the valley of the shadow of the death on the king's highway, here comes Apollyon. Then Apollyon broke out into grievous rage, saying, I am an enemy to this prince, your Jesus. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I've come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian responds back, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. And then here goes the showdown. Then Apollyon straddled over the whole breadth of the way and said, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare yourself to die. For I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no farther. And listen to what he says here. Here will I spill your soul. And with that he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw his sword, for he saw that it was time to bestir him. Don't you just kind of like that old English? I've never thought of using bestir in that way, right? So it was time to bestir him, so he grabs the sword. 
And Apollyon as fast made it him, throwing darts as thick as hell, by which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollyon wounded Christian in his head, his foot, and his hand. Apollyon therefore followed his work, and Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for about a half day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. And listen, this day is coming for you. This day will happen for you at some point in your life. Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall, and that, uh, and with that Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of you now, and with that he almost pressed Christian to death, so that Christian began to despair of his life. But as God would have it while Apollyon was fetching his last and final blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And with that gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one who had received his mortal wound. Now think about that conflict without a sword. Without a sword, you're dead. Without a sword, it's hopeless. Without a sword, you cannot withstand. You cannot set up resistance without knowing gospel promises and being able to apply them. It's over. Like it's, it's not going to work for you. Okay. Think about Jesus. You remember, you remember when Jesus started his ministry? What happened? He fasted for 40 days and nights. He's in the wilderness and who appeared to him in that moment? Satan did. And Satan begins to tempt him. And you remember how these temptations go? First one. I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn these, these stones into bread? And you know what Jesus does? It is written. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Okay, then he does the next one. Satan throws him up to the, the top of the temple and says, Throw yourself down. Angels will catch you. No big deal. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, then he goes to the next one. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and worship me. Deuteronomy 6.13, it's written, worship and serve the Lord your God alone. Okay, you see what Jesus is doing here? In each one of these, in, in this day of evil for Jesus, he is taking out the sword, these gospel promises, these truths from the Bible, and applying it in the moment of need. Now, now contrast that with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in their day of evil, the sword of the Spirit was vacant. It was not there, and they fell. This week, as I was thinking about this, it, it made me uh, think about Deuteronomy 32, and this is going to be on the screen for you. And I want to just point out this one phrase to you in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It says this, right at the end of Deuteronomy, Take to heart all the words by which I'm uh, warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. Verse 47. For it, the law, these words, the word of God, the truth of scripture, these gospel promises, for they, these words, it is no empty word for you. The Bible is not peripheral in your life. The Bible is not kind of this add-on thing that you can do kind of with or without. It's not that. That is not the Bible. Look at this next phrase. The Bible is your very life. These words of God are your very life. Now let me ask you this. Do you treat them that way? Do you treat the word of God as your very life? Do you see it that way? 
And when the day of evil comes, when, when your valley of the shadow of death comes, Apollyon is, is in your face. In that moment, more than you need a paycheck, more than you need a job, more than you need your car, more than you need to watch a game today, more than you need everything else, you need the sword of the spirit. That's what you need, right? Okay, so here's the question of the morning. Is, are, are you taking up the sword of the spirit? That's, that's the command in this passage. Take up the sword of the spirit. Are you doing that? Are you wearing the sword? Is it locked onto you? Is it in your hand, sharpened and ready for warfare? Okay, so, so let me just be clear on this. What does it mean to, to take up the, the, the sword of the spirit? Here's what it means. It means that you know and can apply specific truths of scripture to fight against sin and Satan. That you know and you can apply these specific truths of scripture to fight against sin and Satan. Can you do that? Okay, now I want everybody to look up here at me. Here is my fear for so many of us in this room. We do not have the sword of the Spirit in our hand. We have not taken it up. We, we know about it. We could probably even quote that verse. But it's not in our hand. It's not sharpened and ready for the war. So I, I want to end by giving you um, just five quick encouragements on how it is that you take up the sword of the Spirit, these specific truths of the Bible, and then how you sharpen that sword to get it ready for combat. Number one, hear the Word. This is Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. You need to make sure you're always sitting under good teaching. Listen, I'm not saying that has to be here for you. But I'm saying this. You need to be in a place and giving your life to a place where you are sitting under good teaching, where they are taking the gospel, they're taking your life, and they're showing you how these two things fit. How the gospel intersects in the daily grind of your life. Number two. Number one, hear the word. Number two, read the word. I feel like a broken record on this. Read the word. Open up the Bible daily. Your mind is a leaky bucket. You need to keep refilling that thing with gospel promises. And when we say read the word, we've got the breadth of scripture in view here. Genesis to Revelation. You need to start building a context for the Bible. You need to start getting to where you can see the storyline of the scriptures. That only happens when you consistently read from Genesis to Revelation. When you're consistently reading through the Bible. Okay, so here's my encouragement for you on this piece of it. Practical encouragement. Get a Bible reading plan. Just get a Bible reading plan. Get something where you know tomorrow when you wake up, this is what I'm reading. If you're looking for a good Bible reading plan, you can find it on our website under resources. You can download that and there's a link to a good commentary that kind of runs right beside it. So make sure you're on a Bible reading plan. Something that gives you the breadth of scriptures. And here's what this will do for you. When you're reading Ephesians chapter 6, in your peripheral vision, you'll start to see Genesis chapter 3, how that relates. Deuteronomy 32, how that relates. Matthew 4, how that re- You'll start to see in your peripheral vision how the storyline of the Bible comes in on this passage. Without reading the breadth of scripture, you'll never be able to do that. Read the Bible. Number three. Study the Bible. 
Okay, study does not have the breadth of Scripture in view. It has the depth of Scripture in view. When you study the Bible, you start asking a different set of questions. Now you're asking questions like, what exactly does that mean? What does that word mean? What does that phrase mean? How does this fit into the context of the Bible, into this book of the Bible? What does this teach us about God? What did that mean to the original readers? How does that apply to 21st century living? Practical encouragement for you on studying the Bible. I know that many of you work a full-time job. You don't have hours to spend in a given day to study the Bible. And so let me just give you this practical encouragement. We consistently go through books of the Bible in our preaching. That's our consistent M.O. in here. And so this is what we consistently do. We're in one verse a day. The next week we're going to be in the last six or seven verses in Ephesians. Take whatever we're, we're doing on Sunday morning, whatever book we're in, passages that we're in, and study those things during the week. Run those through a grid. Ask good questions on them. And then we get to, to come in here and we get to kind of work through this thing together at that point. So here's the encouragement. Take what we're doing and study that stuff. That'd be the easiest way for you just to start that habit. Next week, we're going to be in the last part of Ephesians chapter 6. Take that this week. Read it over the dinner table. Ask questions about it as a husband and a wife with your family. Next thing. Number four. Memorize the word. Memorize. This is Psalms 19.1. I've hidden your word in my heart. Let me ask you this question. Do you memorize scripture? Now here's probably your response back if you're not a memorizer. Man, I can't do that. Right? That's, there's no, I, I just don't have that brain. Getting old. All this is set, all that, right? This is what I always tell people. If I put a grand up here for every verse you to memorize, you'd come back in here next week with half the Bible memorized, right? So it's not an issue of can you do it. It's an issue of is this a priority to your life? You have many things memorized right now. It's just the things that are important to you, right? So memorize scripture. Okay, now this is practical encouragement on this one. When you walked in today, you should have gotten our October scripture memory stuff. Every month, we're memorizing scripture as a corporate body together. This year, 2010, we've memorized um, passages out of the book of Romans. In 2011, we're going to take the theme of gospel promises, and we're going to give you passages to memorize once a month, us as a body, to memorize together. That would be a great place to start. As a family, memorizing things. Husband and wife, memorizing the Bible together. Last thing. Those first four, that's how you take up the sword. That's how you get the sword in your hand. Hear, read, study, memorize. Sword in hand. This is how you sharpen the sword, get it ready for battle. Last one. Number five. Is you meditate on what you're reading, what you're studying, what you're memorizing, what you're hearing. This is how you begin to internalize. This is literally meditation is taking the sword of the spirit and running flint across it and sharpening it, getting a razor sharp edge on that. So when you start whacking things in the middle of the war, damage is done, right? This is what happens. This, this is what meditation does. This is the psalmist in Psalms 1 through 3 saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Listen to this. In his law, he meditates day and night. And listen to the results. He shall be like a, a tree planted by the rivers of water, who brings forth its fruit in due season, whose leaves shall never wither, and whatever he does, he'll be prosperous. When you start to meditate on Scripture, it drives them into your heart. It sharpens the sword so that in a moment's notice, you've got them when you need them. 
This is what meditation does. Drives them from your head into your heart. So that is sort of the spirit. Are you reading, studying? Are you internalizing? Have you taken up the sword of the spirit? Do you know these gospel promises that counteract these sinful tendencies? Can you take the word and use it like a sword? Can you do that? And listen, it's our responsibility to make sure we can and our family can. This would be beautiful conversations to happen today. What would it look like for us as a family to start memorizing scripture together? What would it look like if we all started reading the Bible together, studying? Those would be great conversations to have in your home today. Because there will be a day for everyone in your family when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Apollyon comes and opposes you, and without that sword, you will not stand. Let's pray. Sword of the Spirit. Do you know your Bible? Do you know it? I mean, do you really, really know it? Deuteronomy is telling us this is not empty words. This is your life. In the day of evil, your life depends on this. Do you know the word? Can you wield it like a sword? Can you take these truths of the Bible and use it to slice through the schemes of the serpent? And I pray that we could. Daddies. Take this as a challenge for you and your family to, to get the sword into the hands of your wife, into the hands of your kids. And teach them how to sharpen that. There's, no, there's nothing more important for you to give to your kids than that. The sword of the Spirit. The helmet of salvation. This robust understanding, past tense, saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense, saved from the power of sin. Future tense, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Are you wearing that like a helmet? Are you wearing it like a helmet? In the day of evil, it's essential that your helmet's on. That you have this good, robust understanding of all that you have in the gospel. When the, when the Bible says you're saved, all that that means for you. Oh, I pray that, I pray that you would have that. I pray that you would have it. So God help us. God help us. We need great grace to pick up this armor and to start having these, if this is true, then why this? So God help us in that. Help us be diligent to think, to meditate, to sharpen that sword. God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the fact that we have a God who saves past, present, future. Thank you for that. It's in your great and glorious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.